Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The India-Pakistan relationship has rarely been an easy one, with the two disagreeing on everything from territory, cricket, and who is the rightful owner of the Koh-i-Noor diamond. At times, it threatens to spill into open conflict, and we're at a particularly tense moment right now. With me to discuss one of the world's most contentious fence disputes is Ian Hall, Professor of International Relations in the Griffith Asia Institute. Thank you for joining me, Ian. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. So if you could give me a a bit of a quick history lesson, and I know you could do a whole podcast series on uh, this and partition and everything, but the tension between India and Pakistan uh, goes all the way back to 1947, even before that, because it takes time to negotiate something like this, no matter how badly they negotiated it anyway. Uh, How much of an effect has this division had on the two countries and their relationship? Look, it's had an absolutely enormous effect on both countries. Arguably, it's distorted the politics, the focus, the national security agendas in both countries, perhaps more in Pakistan than it has in in India. But uh, if we look at what's gone on, we've got an unresolved conflict, particularly over the area of, of Kashmir, which has has been sitting there festering since 1948. And this is a situation that has, of course, ended up focusing the kind of national uh, security policy elites on both sides in Islamabad and New Delhi over the last, well, however many decades it's been. Mm. And can you tell me just generally what the partition did to the two countries, how the division worked? You know, what's the deal with Bangladesh? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, uh, look, when British India was split up, it was divided up by the British into Muslim-majority and Hindu-majority areas. For the most part, there were a whole number of other areas of territory which were not directly ruled by the British, such as the princely states. uh, And there were actually hundreds of those that were left over under the British Raj, even in 1947. Mm. And then you had anomalous territories like like Kashmir, which was ruled over by a Hindu Maharaja, but the majority of the population was, was Muslim. And in 1947, that territory was then given the choice of whether it was going to join India, whether it was going to join Pakistan, whether it was going to be possibly even divided in some way. Mm. And the Maharaja decided that he wanted to join India under circumstances that both sides sort of still think is somewhat controversial. And of course, then that immediately sparked off uh, tension within Kashmir itself. And at that point, too, there were some militant tribesmen, if you like, who came down with or without the connivance of Islamabad, uh, again, contentious issue, who then invaded effectively into Kashmir on the Pakistani side. And then there was a brief war between India and Pakistan, which left the territory split down the middle. Mm -hmm. And there's tension still to this day, isn't there? The tension isn't just between the two countries. It's also within Kashmir itself. No, that's right. So along the line of control between India and Pakistan, that's kind of the effective de facto border, if you like, mm. that both sides, there are uh, large numbers of troops, there are fences, there are mines, there are all sorts of obstacles there. There are firing incidents on a regular basis. Two years ago, there were about 5,000 firing incidents across the line of control, and people are killed. Soldiers are killed on both sides. Villages are occasionally shelled or killed with stray bullets and so on and such like. So it is a very tense, very fractious kind of area. 
in the last few years as well, I mean, periodically we do see uprisings within Kashmir against the Indian government in the Indian part of Kashmir. Periodically we've seen these. And in 2015, 16, 16 in particular, there was a big upsurge of violence uh, that occurred against the government. And the security forces were then sent in once more into Kashmir. And that's, if you like, the beginning of some of the current tensions that we've seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you say current tensions, in, in February there was a bombing and there has been pretty strong claims that Pakistan is supporting what are being called terrorist groups to fight on their behalf within India-controlled Kashmir. Is that right? Yeah. So on Valentine's Day, on the 14th of February, there was a a terrorist attack on some Indian security forces. Around about 40 or so Indian paramilitary police were killed in a suicide bombing, which actually is quite unusual. Mm. It's carried out by a 22-year-old Kashmiri The allegation is that he was kind of radicalized, if you like, or he was turned against the Indian state when he'd been arrested a few years before. At some point, he seems to have made connection with a group called Jaish-e-Muhammad, which is based in Pakistan. Its head, Mazur Azhar, is is in Pakistan. And they're alleged to be kind of training camps, if you like, schools, uh, other facilities that belong to to JEM, to this group located in Pakistan. And the Indian allegation is that this group kind of behaves with more or less impunity and with some support from elements within the Pakistani state. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's hard to know who is exactly right in this, but who is broadly right? Is Pakistan supporting these kind of efforts unofficially, do you think? There's a fairly good case for saying that that a lot of these militant groups, and it's not just JEM, it's also Lashkar Toiba, for example, the LET group, which carried out the Mumbai attack in 2008. Mm. And that group was being controlled by someone in Pakistan. They were on constant phone calls to somebody who was back in Pakistan who was directing them to carry out the attack. In the JEM attack on Valentine's Day, a little bit different in terms of what was done. And there's no, as far as I've seen so far, no direct evidence linking this particular bomber to a controller back there. There's no phone records or anything like that. Mm. But we can say with reasonable confidence that these groups have operated for some time within Pakistan, that they seem to enjoy their support of parts of the Pakistani state, particularly the security apparatus uh, within the Pakistani state. And now we're at a point where it's essentially tit for tat if you shoot a missile at me, I'm going to shoot three back at you. I think that's a direct unattributed quote, if there can be such a thing from somebody high up in Pakistani government. So that's the point that we're at at the moment, isn't it? It seems like there's going to be tense, continued escalation. Yeah. So, well, I think we did go through this phase around about 10 days after the the terrorist attack, there was an airstrike. The Indian Air Force seems to have flown across the line of control. It's not entirely clear, again, exactly what happened. They flew somewhere near or across the line of control and they bombed some targets within both what's called Pakistani-occupied Kashmir by the Indians, but also within Pakistan proper. So just over the border, if you like, within Pakistan proper is Mm. one of these camps that JEM has. So there was an airstrike. Now, that was unusual. Air power has not been used across the line of control like that since 1999. Although we see firing, you know, artillery and infantry and so on, we don't see airstrikes. A couple of days later, then, Pakistanis responded. Again, not entirely sure of the detail, but what seems to have happened is that they flew some aircraft at the line of control and tempted an Indian fighter or a packet of Indian fighters to intercept them, whereupon they shot at least well one of these down, maybe two, again, don't know, uh, and a pilot lands in Pakistan. Mm. And there were, there were pictures of this on social media and everything like that, which put forward a pretty 
convincing case that this had gone on. Yeah, that's right. So the pilot lands, there's social media footage, uh, mm. there's phone footage of this guy sort of landing. He's sitting there in a creek. He's actually being sort of beaten up by the villagers and kind of rescued by the Pakistani army. There are other videos too. The Pakistani army took a video of him in the car as he's driving off to go and be interrogated or to be held. And then there are other videos that were taken then after he's been taken to this facility. You know, that social media footage enraged opinion in India, as you can imagine. Mm. Uh, And, you know, there were then calls for uh, stronger action to be taken and so on. Now, at that point, um, either wiser heads prevailed (laughs) in Pakistan with Imran Khan, the, the current prime minister, or some people have suggested the United States intervenes and tells the Pakistanis that enough is enough to hand this pilot back. Mm. And he's handed back. So that was a very dangerous situation that could have escalated and could have got significantly worse. But in a way, the fact that this pilot was shot down and captured was actually kind of serendipitous because it gave everyone a focal point, not a bargaining chip, but it gave some thing that Pakistan could give back to India that might try and diffuse some of the tensions. Oh, I see what you mean, that this is like a, um, a look, we've done this to them. We don't need to escalate it any further for now. That's right. Yeah. And it seems at that point, then things ramp down a little. What we have seen since is still more firing across the line of control. There have been artillery barrages, civilians have been killed in villages. Now, it's a bit difficult to tell without seeing all the statistics whether that's a, a big increase in the number of firings that happen. If you've got 5,000 or so per year, there's already a lot, awful lot of violence going on anyway. Mm. But certainly it's been reported as being more significant than it usually is. Mm. So, you know, 20 odd years ago at the turn of the century, things were looking quite good for peace in Kashmir or better than they had been for a long time. But it seems like the Modi government has been able to harness the tension, especially when it goes to his strongman persona, and to make the most of it and to say, no, look, we need to be tough with the Pakistani. So how do you think the the tension's playing out on a domestic level for India? Yeah, I think in some ways this is quite a fortunate situation for the Modi government, you know, running into the elections. You know, they find themselves in this situation where they're able to burnish their national security credentials. They're Mm. able to act against Pakistan, which everybody knows. Everyone knows in inverted commas is a kind of hostile actor. They're able to act and they're able to act in a decisive way, which which demonstrates that they're strong on national security. And it's good for Modi running up to the election too because Modi's economic record over the last five years has been lacklustre. He came to power promising much higher rates of growth than the previous government. And I think, although the figures are a little ropey and questionable sometimes, he hasn't delivered that. Mm. He came to power saying he was going to create 25 million jobs a year and there's no sign that that's the case. And in fact, uh, the job market statistics have been delayed or were delayed prior to the election. So, yes, in some ways, this is quite lucky. Just how lucky this has been for the Modi government, this situation was for the government, it is kind of demonstrated by the fact that there is this kind of conspiracy theory going around saying that hardliners in Islamabad would rather see Modi in power than somebody else, somebody that they can hate, dislike, they can point the finger at and they I can see. blame. Yeah, yeah. And, that he, and they even that they may have staged this attack knowing that Modi would respond knowing that that would help him in the polls that's a very long bow it's a very long bow and <laughs> yeah. not one that I would <laughs> endorse <laughs> but it's funny that, that that kind of idea kind of surfaced uh, yeah. really quite rapidly after the terrorist attack 
So what do you think this is going to do to the relationship going forward? Because India has has said that they're going to politically isolate Pakistan on the international stage. Now, I don't know what that means or what the extent of that is. And I also don't know if Pakistan's also kind of doing that to themselves. What do you think this is going to mean going forward for the two countries? Do you see it as a, a situation that's going to get worse before it gets better? Look, there's sort of three different components to this. And one is that the Modi government and actually the previous government as well have made a series of steps to try and isolate Pakistan diplomatically by doing things like listing terrorist groups and individual terrorists on United Nations Security Council lists of of designated terrorists. Mm. In fact, around and about a half the organizations that are listed on that UN list are based in Pakistan. So they can easily point to these kinds of international lists and say, look, here we've got a country which, even if it's not an overt sponsor of terrorism, is hosting a whole series of nasty militant groups. And they argue that helps them kind of diplomatically. And it helps to push particularly Western opinion away from Pakistan, create a sort of less sympathetic environment. And arguably in Washington, that's where it really matters. India would like to see the military aid in particular that goes to to Pakistan drop. Mm. Problem is, for India, Pakistan's got other friends. So it's got the Saudis and it's got the Chinese. And China and the Security Council has, has resisted listing this JEM leader, Azhar, on this UN list. And it's done that fairly consistently over the last few years. And it's demonstrating, in a way, the manner in which China can kind of complicate India's plans for Pakistan mm. and the way in which China can protect Pakistan. In other words, there are limits to the kind of diplomatic isolation that India can impose. And then the last issue is what lessons in sort of strategic terms did either side learn? What India would like Pakistan to learn is that they will respond with force if there are these kinds of cross-border attacks and they're not going to sit back, absorb them and so on. They're going to actually respond to that. What Pakistan has learned, though, may be a different lesson. It can also respond. It can kind of escalate a crisis. And once it escalates that crisis, the United States will step in and help them out or they'll shut both sides down or something like that. So the lessons that either side would like to learn and the lessons they've actually learned are actually quite different things. Mm. Uh, And that's where we have to temper our optimism about how this relationship is going to evolve. So when you've got two countries that are like this with nuclear weapons pointed at each other, probably. Is the world concerned enough about this? This is one of the real flashpoints you get to a sort of conflict that can spill over and escalate quite quickly. But it doesn't seem like it gets a lot of attention. Do you think that intervention should be stepped up for something like this to try and cool the tensions between the two countries? So neither side wants third parties kind of involved, particularly in the Kashmir dispute, or particularly India, but also to some a large degree Pakistan as well. Mm. So already from the start, you know, there's not a lot of appetite for third parties to come in and interfere. And that really goes back all the way down to, to the late 1940s and early 1950s. India took the Kashmir dispute to the United Nations, and it didn't get what it wanted. That's rankled with India for a long, long time. And then other states have come in, particularly the US, but other countries have come in at other points and said, you know, we'll mediate or we'll help you out or we'll try and resolve this conflict. Uh, we'll hold talks and so on. And they've gone badly, generally speaking. Well, essentially, that's what started this problem in the first place, if you want to go back to British India, I suppose. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> so there's an additional problem, which is, and it's a kind of a technical military strategy issue, 
which is that both sides expect there to be third party intervention, diplomatic intervention in a crisis. So both sides know they've probably got 72 hours before Washington is on the phone really shouting at them. To, oh, to if something down. starts. Yes. Yeah. So if there is a conflict that occurs, both sides know there's a window of opportunity to, to, to get what they want. So from the Indian side has developed this, it's a non-official, official doctrine called cold start, which imagines that if there's a cross-border incident, it will send kind of armoured columns into Pakistan, seize some territory as a bargaining chip, and then stop. That's the 72 hours up. On the Pakistani side, they have kind of structured their strategy around escalating almost to a nuclear exchange very rapidly, make the crisis as bad as they can possibly make it very, very quickly, again, knowing that they've got this three-day window and hoping that they're going to get as much advantage out of it as they possibly can within those three days. You know, we live in a, we have lived, maybe we don't live in that world anymore, but we've lived in a world for a long time now where the United States has has been this kind of diplomatic arbiter mm. and that Washington will step in regardless of, of where this is around the world. So that assumption has been current for a long time. What makes people like me even more worried is that we've got in Washington a president who, uh, you know, is a little bit capricious and his judgment is a little questionable. Yeah, uh, yeah. And we've also got an establishment both in the State Department and in the Pentagon that is not as strong as, as perhaps it was under other presidencies. We do know in this case that even though Trump was and his team were distracted by what was going on with, with Kim Jong-un with the, the Korea summit uh, in Hanoi, which happened around the same time as this crisis evolved. We do know, though, that John Bolton, the national security advisor, was on the phone to both sides throughout. Mm. Uh, and we know that Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, was too. But it would be good, you know, if we had a permanent defense secretary and a kind of robust set of South Asia specialists in there too to help out. Mm-hmm. So with this tension between India and Pakistan, who benefits from it? Do you see anybody as benefiting from these two being essentially involved and distracted with each other on this level? So unfortunately, it's the it's the people that you don't want to benefit that you that probably will benefit, if you see what I mean. So on the Pakistani side, it's those bits of the government establishment and particularly the military establishment that benefit from continued tension with India because it allows them to continue getting a large chunk of the government budget. Mm. Uh, It allows them to carry on running their business activities on the side as well as doing their military things and so on and so forth. On the Indian side too, it's the nationalists that win and it's the hardline nationalists that win in all of this. And they may be not the people that we would ideally want to be coming out of this in, in a better position. In this case, yes, Modi's won, I think, Uh, at least within India. Outside India, though, if we look at the kind of PR balance, the fact that Pakistan hands back this pilot at the end of the crisis, the fact that Imran Khan is Imran Khan. and I I saw mentions of a Nobel Prize. (laughs) That's right. Meant that actually a lot of international media covered this as, you know, Pakistan was being reasonable, Pakistan Mm. being the, the better, more benevolent party in all of this. And I find that quite odd, quite striking. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we've got today for the podcast. Thanks for your time today, Ian. Thanks very much, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you may find your podcasts. You can follow Ian on Twitter. He is at Dr. Ian Hall. And you can follow Latrobe Asia. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>